It is Tuesday, November the 15th, 2022. Welcome in everybody to episode 63 of Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It's a production of John Boy Media. I'm Justin Shackle. He is the five-time World Series champion, David Cohn. We have our awesome producer, Dan Rourke, along for the ride as well. We don't have James Smythe. Uh, James is vacationing in Italy this week. Nice place. I'm fully expecting the cumulative count of carbs that Smythe is intaking here on this trip. Uh, David, have you ever been to Italy before? I, I have not. I, I almost half expect him to pull up on with the headphone set and, you know, and in Rome somewhere, right? Just try to do a, a towing the slab podcast from Rome, but now he deserves the time. James works so hard and uh, it's good to see him get a, get a vacation. Yeah. James is the type of guy who's probably on vacation in a terrific place like Italy yet is still having FOMO that he can't come, <laughs> come down here and, and dissect what we're about to talk about here on this week's uh, edition of Toe in the Slap, but you know, Italy's amazing. And uh, James will have done it right if he comes back like 10 pounds heavier. So uh, lots to discuss and cover this week here on Tone the Slab. Free agency now underway. Uh, qualifying offers were issued. Some interesting developments with the Astros. We'll we'll touch on that as well. So we'll look at the Astros situation. We'll look at some of the pitchers who received qualifying offers, like I just mentioned. And we'll also fully cover the Aaron Judge free agency. Take a look at what the future could hold in store for Judge, for the Yankees. Now that free agency is underway, we'll tackle all of this. Um, but first, we begin, like we do every week, with the opener. So David starts us off with a topic that is on his mind. David, what do you have for this week? Well, it's interesting. You know, you follow the business of baseball, and the, especially in the offseason, and organizations sort of move in tandem, right? The, all the resources are when it's around the draft time during the season, you know, everybody's working on the, the amateur draft together and, the, and then they move on to the next thing. Well, this week, the big thing is, is the 40 man roster and the rule five draft and then the deadlines that the organizations are up against now. And this really comes down to self-evaluating. One of the most important things you can do as an organization is know your own talent really in any industry, right? Know what you have right under your noses and how do how do you evaluate them and recent examples of this or just look up in Boston at Garrett Whitlock you know during the COVID situation the Yankees kind of did you know he was coming off on the Tommy John surgery didn't really know where he was left him unprotected Boston swooped in got him in the rule five draft and got themselves one heck of a pitcher Trevor Steffen in Cleveland another example of that in past years so this is this week so that's why you, I think you're going to see Free agency certainly still be talked about. Everything's kind of done at once, but all eyes are on internally the roster protection, 40-man roster, the Rule 5 draft, who we protect. On the Yankees side, obviously, they made some big trades at the trade deadline, lost some of their pitching depth in the minor leagues. Uh, Waldachek and Wesneski, two big names that they traded away at the deadline. Uh, Johnny Brito and, and, and I think Matt Crook are two names that are probably going to be protected, maybe two minor league names to pay attention to that have moved up the ladder and deserve consideration to probably go on the 40-man roster and be protected. I think one of them probably already has, or, or both of them. I think both, yeah, both of both them, of them put on, have, yeah. have already, those decisions have been made on those two guys. So those are the two names to pay attention to, but that's where the organizations are now. And it's, it's become much more important nowadays because scouting so much better now with social media videos being posted. It's much easier to get a read on minor league talent across the board nowadays than it ever has been. You can't hide by, you can't hide arms anymore. You just can't do it. It used to be able to do that 20 years ago. You could hide some arms in your minor leagues. Can't do it anymore. It's a big deal. 
a lot of talent out there, a lot of minor league arms that can throw the ball 95 miles an hour plus. My relievers have never been more talented. So that that's uh that's what's going on in the industry right now, trying to figure out who to protect and and who to leave unprotected. Yeah, that date coming up, the deadline for that is November the 15th. So that's actually happening uh, Wednesday of this week. And you're right, like self-evaluation, self-cross-checking, like that is so key. And a day like this, where you need to protect certain players, provides a pretty good indication of how, I guess, how well you're doing that. And look, there are two big names when you hyper-focus in on the Yankees, like you mentioned, Whitlock, Stefan, those hurt for sure. But the way they have been able to turn some of their assets, their minor league capital into major league ready players that could help them on the active roster. I think they've done a really good job with that. And at the same time, two players having massive levels of success, it still hurts. So even though you have an organization, like I think the Yankees do a lot of things right, especially with how they develop relief pitching uh, for the most part looks pretty good, but you could still be a team that does those things well and miss and those misses can hurt really bad and it's tough not to think of Whitlock and Stefan in that way so this is yeah like you mentioned a very important date uh, November 18th also the non-tender deadline so it's the deadline for certain players to be tendered contracts or hit free agency and I think after these two dates David you're going to see business really pick up as it pertains to offseason trades and free agent signings yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is a big deal for organizations to get this right more now than ever before because of the reasons we mentioned bef before. But this is a good thing for players. If you think about it, you know, after three years in the minor leagues, either you get protected on the 40-man roster or you you have a chance to go somewhere else if somebody likes your talent. So back in the day, as they say, back in the 50s and 40s and earlier history of baseball, you know, organizations like the Yankees used to just stockpile players in the minor leagues and you were stuck forever pre Marvin Miller days, you know, where the, the reserve clause was still in place. You, know, you, you could just get buried in the minor leagues. Uh, these rules, these 40 man roster rules, uh, the, these limited protection rules are, are really a good thing for the players to, to have more mobility and have more of a chance to apply your trade. If somebody else likes your skills and somebody else leaves you unprotected off the 40 man roster. It's a busy week for the decision makers of all 30 major league franchises. And, ironically david it's like a week ago i were talking about the houston astros just after they won a world series looked at as the model franchise in major league baseball and now after james click has departed the organization as their gm really he was given a, a contract that was made for him to refuse from owner jim crane click out as astros gm after declining a one-year extension after his team wins the world series um, the Astros are kind of left with a big question mark over their head, at least in, in my opinion. There were reports that Jim Crane, the owner, and Click had increased friction as the season went along. There were also reports that Crane kind of had a role in making baseball decisions. So you have the, the owner down on that level. My question here, David, for as good as Houston has been, does Jim Crane's reported involvement in making baseball decisions Make us a little weary about the Astros moving forward. Uh, I I think it's a little deeper than that. I think you, it's a, it's um, it's a trifecta. You got to bring Dusty Baker into this as well. And I kind of believe, you know, Jim Crane told me in the playoffs when I talked to him, 
that he had to play referee all year long between Dusty Baker and, and James Click. So meaning that Dusty Baker, per, per, from perception standpoint, more of an old school guy, believes in feel, certainly loves information. You know, I wouldn't consider him, you know, a progressive new school manager by any means, but likes the information, understands it as best as he can, but still trust his gut, trust his instincts, and probably had a lot of pushback to the analytics department. And that's where Jim Crane came in. And I think the reason why he was more involved was to sort of be a go-between between between Dusty Baker and his general manager, James Click. And I think that's probably where the problems were, who to trade for, what acquisitions to make, how to manage a game, how to use your bullpen. Is it going to be scripted? How do you, how do you get Dusty Baker to follow a script? It's Dusty Baker. So, you know, I think that's probably what was going on there. It's not just, crane versus click uh, you've got to have dusty baker in that mix as well and it feels like you know jim crane went with dusty baker dusty baker won you know and so you know it was it was uh, a situation where you know what this is this is not really working and and there was a and crane felt like he was forced in the middle of those two at least that's what he told me so i can only take it at face value but i sense that that was a really three-headed battle there philosophies on the line how do they work together decisions who's got the real authority to run the baseball ops i think that, that that's where it came into that that's why crane got in the middle between dusty baker and james click and that's why you know that there was only a one-year offer on the table and james click said the heck with that you know i'm I, we just won the world series i've done my job you don't believe in me then i'm out of here and i respect him for that certainly do respect him for that but it's much deeper than just an owner and a general manager in this case and that's interesting because though if, if it went down that way, the guy who the owner side with, he acquitted himself rather well, obviously, in Dusty Baker. He showed that his methods work, led his team to a championship. So um, yeah, for, for for James Click, I think he's gonna be fine. I think I think he's gonna be able to find a place that that values his approach to the game. And that's great for him. Seems like Baker's happy on a one-year deal given his age, what he's accomplished. We, we love to see all the success that Dusty has had. And for an owner, Jim Crane, who, you know, say what you want about what happened between 2017 and 2019, the way he handled that, um, things have gone really well since then, period. So this is a, a move probably he made with conviction. And we'd, we'd like to see Dusty Baker continue to, to have this type of success, if that's the case. It kind of nullifies the next question I guess I had here is, you know, when, when you take a look at who could be next as the Astros GM. And this is definitely something that maybe 15, 20 years ago, you'd have GM candidates that you can kind of rattle off your head. Now, so many GM candidates are people that we don't know, people behind the scenes, and we only hear about their names uh, when the GM searches have started, I mean, if you're really, really in the weeds and know the in and outs, you, you know, you may know who the hot GM prospects could be behind the scenes and stuff like that. But one guy who I thought could potentially pop up, and I didn't know the exact relationship where things were left off between the owner, Jim Crane, and former GM, Jeff Lunau. So I was wondering about the possibility of a reunion there. Could the Astros bring Jeff Luno back? I doubt it. I think most people on the inside kind of feel like that, that, that sort of ran its course. Mm -hmm. There were other uh, instances where 
it wasn't just about the cheating scandal. It was some, it was partly too about the, the, uh, the way the business was run behind the scenes. And I'll say this, you know, I mean, the game even more so than ever before, because of all the information, the information age, all the data, the analytics that the general managers have access to, it's become kind of a hot and a cold job comparing Dusty Baker. Who's on the hot side. He's in the dugout. He, de- he, he develops strong emotional connections with his players. We saw him go up and hug Jose Altuve in that big Yankee stadium series where at the end of the three game series, Jose Altuve hits a big home run after the F Altuve chance all weekend long, just a barrage of chance. And Dusty goes down and emotionally get, grabs him by the face and gives him this emotional hug. That's the manager's job. It's a hot job emotionally. The general manager's job, on the other hand, is kind of a cold job, right? I mean, very mechanical, very analytical. Don't get emotionally attached to your decisions. You know, be super uber efficient. So that's the clash we have here and in, in today's kind of, uh, you know, modern baseball game. So we, who's next or, you know, it's, uh, you know, how do you evaluate these situations? You've got to find the right working relationship to where, you know, you, you don't get too close to your decisions if you're a general manager, but at the same time, still understand the human element. There's this, there's still human beings playing this game and there's certain things that can't be quantified. And I think that's what Dusty Baker brought to the table about that, that connection emotionally. And that, that is anti-analytics. It's, it's great. It's just straight human beings. So, you know, that, that's the battle that's going on. I think um, every organization, every owner has got to, got to weigh those two things because uh Anybody can get information. Everybody's got access to information now. Now, certainly within every organization, there's proprietary information that some are still better than others, you know, without a doubt. And some have poured more resources into that particular area. I wonder now if behind the scenes, how many owners may be thinking after watching the Astros and saying to themselves, hmm, maybe perhaps we've gone too far in one direction. And now we'd like to see that healthy balance that the Astros created this year and it seems like they're investing a potential organization changing moves you know things that could rattle the the path of the organization they're willing to make those hard decisions to keep that and stay ahead so hey maybe a few minutes ago when i was questioning the direction or the future of the houston astros maybe they are more ahead of everybody else than we ever have thought of before oh yeah it is an interesting thing, you know, when you try to assess what happened, how do you, how do you let go a general manager that just won the world series? It, it's kind of, it's, it's head scratching, but you know, I will say this, finding that balance is what I just mentioned is really difficult. That's one of the things that makes Aaron Boone so beloved in his clubhouse is because he's mastered that part of it, that em- emotional connection to his players. They, but they adore him. He protects them. We've seen all the arguments from the savages in the box to you know, historically speaking, him almost to a point, almost to a fault of arguing with the umpires and protecting his players, especially with the strike zone, the Aaron Judge low strikes call. Nobody's been more proactive on that than Aaron Boone. And that's why uh, he's a great new school manager in that regard, in that one area, and that the players love him. And he's developed that emotional connection with his players that is kind of missing in today's cold analytical game sometimes of, you know, uh, black and white, what can be quantified and what makes sense and, and uh, certainly what's more efficient as opposed to emotional, you know, the, the Uber efficiency of today's game that it's kind of run, run up against it a little bit uh, by, by a lot of measures. 
So when we see the headlines of like in the in the reports that Jim Crane is meddling in baseball operations decisions, he is not the Jerry Jones of Major League Baseball. He's you know making a move with conviction based on what he's seen with the way Dusty Baker has done his job and how everything went down with with the departure of James Click. Uh, very interesting. Another thing that the Astros now have to take a look at this offseason is whether or not they're going to bring back Justin Verlander because he opted out of his contract with the Astros last last week. He stands to make a lot more money than the $25 million that his original contract was worth. Probably going to be announced as the AL Cy Young Award winner this week. What kind of short-term big money deal you think it's going to take to sign Justin Verlander? Like, where does the bidding begin with Verlander? I think the bidding begins with who else is, is involved. I think uh, he's developed a pretty close relationship with, with, uh, with Crane, the owner and the ownership there. And he, you know, Crane's an ex pitcher himself in my, in, uh, in, in, in uh, college baseball on an amateur level. Uh, Jim Crane was a, was a pitcher. So you, you could tell, you know, and there's always biases. We all have our internal biases based on our own backgrounds. Jim Crane's very, very prone to, to pitchers. He developed that relationship with Verlander. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because that's one of the areas of extreme depth that the Astros have. Do they really, can they get away with reallocating those resources that would go to Verlander and, and just fill, fill in the blanks with one of their great young starters coming up, you know, whether it's Brown or somebody else that they've had, uh, you know, in, in the minor leagues that's coming up, they have people to fill him, fill him in. So the question becomes, Who's out there for Verlander? The Yankees become a player again. You know, the Yankees have been interested in Verlander. I don't He's not their white whale like Garrett Cole was, but they were in on the 2017 trade deadline. It didn't work out. They were in last year too. You know, and I, I know that you know, there was talk that they made an offer, but it wasn't quite on par or, or certainly uh, wasn't enough to entice him away from the Astros. That That's going to happen again. If you're a win now team, why wouldn't you want Verlander in your rotation next year for a year at least? Do you go to two years? Probably, probably would because he's already had his new elbow. He's had Tommy John surgery. He keeps himself in impeccable condition. He's going to be the Cy Young Award winner. His stuff has not really dropped off that much. I don't see that happening in this offseason that all of a sudden he's going to crater. He is who he is. He's the greatest pitcher of his generation. Him and Scherzer are one, one and one A terms of examples of the best right-handed pitchers of their generation. So yes, you want to win the world series next year. You want to win your, your division. Yeah. Of course you'd want Justin Verlander on your team. I would be surprised if the Yankees aren't involved as well at some point, you know, to, to get Justin Verlander in that rotation right behind Garrett Cole, that'd be a pretty good matchup with, with Severino in there as well. That's pretty good. One, two, three punch right there. So why wouldn't you want him on your team? It's an easy question to answer, uh, but I think there are only a small handful of win-now teams who would empty the pockets the way they'd need to to get a guy like Justin Verlander because you take a look at a number like $43.3 million. That's what Max Scherzer's taking in annually. Garrett Cole's at, at $36 million. And it gets me wondering here. You mentioned the Yankees, for sure. But would a team like the New York Mets perhaps be better off with Justin Verlander on a, a short-term deal than maybe a guy like Jacob deGrom on a longer contract? It's interesting. I think they're going to follow deGrom if, if Jason, if, uh, if deGrom ends up getting big offers elsewhere. And there's been rumors that Texas may be really coming after deGrom hard. And that makes sense for the Texas Rangers. They really need somebody like him, especially with uh, the, the way they performed last year. They're, 
the Rangers are an interesting team to follow in that regard. So I really, I, I yes, they, they're big time in play. They have the resources. They underperformed last year. If you look at the run differential last year, they underperformed by at least 10 games. I, I think the Rangers are everybody's pick to really have a huge bounce back this year and be a plus 10, maybe a plus 15 team, meaning 10 or 15 wins more than they had last year. Maybe not a complete reversal, but they have some big players there. They need some pitching. DeGrom was perfect for the Rangers. So if that happens, then yes, why wouldn't the Mets with, with Scherzer in the win-now mode they're in go right for Verlander or somebody like him? You know, Corbin Burns in, in Milwaukee is another name to watch. And will they trade him or not? I think there's a lot of speculation that he might be available to, in, in the trade market. So, yeah, I, the big arms like that are few and far between, and they still matter in postseason. We saw that this postseason. Starting pitching still matters. Tell you what, just for my little corner here, I don't know if I'd be in wait and see mode with Jacob DeGrom for the Mets. I think if I had to choose between Verlander and DeGrom, I'd give Verlander the shorter term big money over than the potential risks that Jacob DeGrom could carry in a long term deal. That's just me. Yeah. I mean, you got to factor in all the other decisions. You know, Nemo in center field, you're going to have to pay him probably a uh, hundred million plus type contract. So, yeah, I mean, it's all, it sort of all adds up you know, the, the big picture and how, what pieces you can fit under the umbrella of a $300 million payroll, probably somewhere in that range for the Mets. All right. One of the other key dates that's coming up is the deadline for players to accept or reject a qualifying offer. And one of the Mets pitchers from this past season, uh, Chris Bassett was tendered a qualifying offer. They received qualifying offers last week. I think 14 players total, received qualifying offers. There were several pitchers, though. Bassett was one of them. Jacob deGrom was another. Uh, Tyler Anderson, Nate Evaldi, Martin Perez, and Carlos Rodon. They all received qualifying offers. At face value, does any pitcher accept their qualifying offer, David? Of, of that list, the one guy who I might suspect could would be Tyler Anderson because it's the Dodgers and he he wants to stay there and win and, and prove himself on back-to-back -back years that, that he is uh, what they saw last year. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, of all the guys, I mean, that, that's such a, such a great place to play. You know, the LA Dodgers, and you had a great year, you have a great team there. So I, I suspect he might be tempted to do it depending on his, this is where your agent really comes in, in, in terms of, Hey, we, we think you can do better. You know, we, we have Intel that, tells us that there will be multi-year offers out there in other places, but you have to really be prepared to go wherever that is, whether that's Texas or, or wherever it might be, you've got to be prepared to leave the Los Angeles Dodgers. That's a tough, that's a tough call right there. Same with Bassett really with the Mets. I know he loved New York, loved playing with the Mets. He's probably got a chance to get a multi-year deal. So that's another one. You know, I look at the big markets, the Mets and the Dodgers. That's where I look at pitchers that, fall in love with playing with a big market and know that you're going to have good teams, know that you're going to chance to win. That's the tempting part where you just want to stay. And that that's a nice salary for one year, you know, to stay and prove yourself one more time. Yeah. The salary for the qualifying offer, 19.65 million for 2023. I, I think I could see Tyler Anderson accept. I think uh, what 32 years of age, he made 8 million last year, which was a career high for him. Uh, Anderson wouldn't be uh, Anderson uh, accepting. It, it wouldn't shock me, but I think it's more likely that every pitcher declines the qualifying offer. We'll see uh, November 20th, the deadline to accept.
This episode of Tone the Slab is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Whether or not you've thought about therapy before, look, we've all gone through life with an uncertain part of it. Maybe there is a period where some level of doubt crept into your mind. You may have experienced the loss of a loved one and overall perhaps just wished life came with a user manual at some point. BetterHelp Online Therapy is basically the next best thing. Uh, everyone deserves to feel their best here. BetterHelp has made it super easy to get started here. They're the world's largest therapy service. They've matched millions of people with professionally licensed and, and vetted therapists that are available 100% online. So you get all the benefits of in-person therapy. Plus, it's a lot more convenient and more accessible and more affordable. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to match up with a therapist. And if things aren't necessarily clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for that right therapist. Get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash slab. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash slab. You mentioned teams that should be in win-now mode go after a guy like Justin Verlander. Curious here, out of the teams who failed to make the postseason this past year, which club needs to operate in win-now mode the most? I think the White Sox come, come you know, right at the top of the list. They finished right at 500, and they really underachieved. Uh, they are still obviously uh, built to win. Um, you know, the, the thing is with the White Sox is there was a lot of injuries. There was a lot of underperformance, but the talent is certainly there across the board. They were expected to win that division. Some people even had them competing for the, the World Series. So I look at the White Sox. I look at their owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, getting up there in age. One of those owners, ownerships that says, you know what? I want to win now. I, you know, I can't wait five years. I, this isn't the time to rebuild. Uh, you know, I, I need it now. So of all the teams out there, I, I look at the White Sox as the one team to me that really needs it. They're in the central division. Cleveland with their young team really overtook them ahead of schedule. So you're going to get left in the dust right now if you're the White Sox, unless you can step it up a notch and, and get back on top in that division. So of all the other teams I look at, you know, San Francisco Giants are kind of a sleeping giant out West, certainly as well. And big players possibly with Aaron judge, but they're in a tough division trying to keep up with the Padres and the Dodgers. Um, you know, every, anywhere else you look, whether it's Milwaukee's kind of operating on a budget, you know, certainly they, they feel like they can win, but David Stern's kind of the general manager moves up the ladder and out. Is he on his way out? Is that a potential general manager's name to watch on down the road? Where are they in, in, in their development and, and what they're trying to do? And, you know, Minnesota's a wild card. In, in that division as well. But I think it's the White Sox. If I had to pick one team, Chicago White Sox. It feels like that window with that core is very much still open and they don't want to regret that maybe some poor decision-making over the last several years and also players not staying healthy close that window a little bit. Like there's still time to make up for that over the next couple of years here for the Chicago White Sox. I like that one a lot. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think, Baltimore should keep going based off the type of success they've had. But for me, the team that should be in win now mode that failed to make the playoffs is the San Francisco Giants. You touched on them. They have the resources. And I think 
this year, if no other year, showed a team in the NL West that anything could happen. So don't get intimidated by what the Dodgers have become because with the right amount of elbow grease, right amount of decisions, anyone in this league could be slayed at the time it matters most in October. The Padres prove that. I, I think when you ask yourself, man, can we keep up with the Dodgers and the Padres? Like that shouldn't be an acceptable question for the San Francisco Giants to have to ask themselves. At least the Padres shouldn't be in that equation. Like, yes, we should be leapfrogging the Padres. We should be neck and neck with the Dodgers. We have the resources. We just have to make the right decisions. And I think this leads perfectly into the Aaron Judge free agency, which again, free agency kicked off within the last week. Judge could theoretically sign with anyone right now. And from everything that we've been hearing, Aaron Judge is the prime target of the San Francisco Giants. Uh, the Yankees obviously want him back. I think the main question there is whether they're willing to, to do what's needed to bring him back. And we also don't exactly know what Judge wants. We're probably not going to find that out until after he agrees with the team on a new deal. Uh, we mentioned the Giants, the Dodgers. They're rumored to be tied with, with Judge. And I think like if they want to dip their toes into that pool – Big question is, like, what can they offer Judge that the Yankees can't? But with the Giants, they reportedly want him because he is that obvious star, that ownership. Like, this is an ownership-type move with whomever is after Judge. Brian Cashman said it in his season-ending press conference. Like, Judge is an ownership decision. Um, but for the Giants, Aaron Judge represents the guy who can lead the organization into the future with – team success with ticketing generating marketing everything like that judge is also a guy who grew up close to san francisco he's from the area we know that he rooted for him could potentially be comforting here and i think david you're one of the perfect people to ask this here because at one point in your career you chose to sign as a free agent with your hometown team in the Royals, a little bit different because the Royals also drafted you, but you went back to Kansas city. And it was after you established yourself as one of the premier pitchers in the game. If hypothetically, Aaron judge was asking David Cohn about the pros and the cons of signing with your hometown team. What would you tell him? Uh, I would tell him that there's a, there's a unique pressure that comes with playing in your hometown where we're, you know, people you went to high school with come out of the woodworks you know, for ticket request, uh, certainly off the field type stuff. Um, you know, the other thing I would tell him that, you know, they, uh, everybody's different as far as your hometown experience. When I, once you've got a taste of what he's gotten a taste of in New York with the Yankees, for me, it was the Mets for six years and postseason play and, and being in the spotlight. You're going to miss it. You miss it when you, when you leave it. And the best day of my career uh, one of the best days of my career is when I got traded back to New York to the Yankees back in 1995. I signed home with the Royals in 1992. It was the same year that Barry Bonds signed with the Giants back in 1992. He went back home as well. He ended up staying there. Uh, I ended up with the Royals for a couple of years. The strike came after the strike was over. I was traded back to Toronto and then back to the Yankees finally in, in 1995. That was tremendous. I could not wait to get back to New York. Yeah, after having left New York. And I think that's what I would that's what I would caution. If you had a great experience playing for the Yankees, and I know Aaron Judge has, you're gonna miss it when you quit it's gone. You're gonna miss that spotlight. You're gonna miss the attention, the passion. And yeah, it's tough. Yeah, he got booed. 
Uh, whether that was fair or not or right or wrong. Yeah, we know his teammates have gotten booed. We know the Yankee fan base can be tough, but they are so passionate. And you're you are uh, an absolute hero when you come through for that home, for that fan base. That's something that gets in your blood, and something you're definitely going to miss when it's gone. I think he understands that as well. I think that's why we saw him in the postseason when he hit a big home run in the postseason, kind of soccer style, grab his grab the jersey and and kiss the logo. And then, you know, there's no doubt Aaron Judge loves playing for the Yankees. I think his first choice would be to play for his Yankee play for the Yankees. We know what he wanted back in spring training. He wanted Mike Trout money. He wanted the top of the scale. And he's right. He deserves to be at the top of the pay scale. Uh, Mike Trout, I think, on an average annual basis is around $36 million a year. We know Max Scherzer, uh, as for a pitcher, certainly broke the scale and went up to over $40 million, I think $43 million-ish. Don't quote me, somewhere in that range. So we know the top of the pay scale for, for a position player is in the mid to upper 30s, that Aaron Judge absolutely deserves to be there. Who other than Aaron Judge should be at the top of the pay scale right now? I mean, he's earned it so that we know that's what he asked for in spring training. The Yankees were around 30 million or so, give or take, with their final offer, which he thought was short. And he was right. And he went out and proved it. So he needs to be at the top of the scale. Wherever that falls into now is it up to, to market market forces at this point. <laughs> and market forces, perfect way to, to phrase it there, whatever it is uh you know needs to be met by by Aaron Judge's beliefs because he like we said he bet him bet on himself proved it backed it up put himself in this terrific position the narrative of the Bronx Jeers perhaps being a small decision in a player's choice and we've heard that here I, maybe it's my ignorance but i really can't believe after the way that judge has carried himself over the course of his Yankee tenure, the things that, you know, he said, I think he as you know, more than anyone realizes like the fans don't come there to boo. They come there to cheer. And that situation, when you're able to get it done, he would probably say it himself. I mean, he did at the end of the season, like he knew he, he underperformed. And if he was, you know, they only put themselves in that position in, in terms of rising up, or just having a tough series and he would probably, you know, take ownership of that. Uh, I think that's the mark there. Like he, he realizes what's going on and why fans booed in certain situations. So I don't take that as heavily as a lot of the, you know, stories we're hearing uh, recently as, as free agency kicks off here, but I want to, I guess, present two different scenarios here for the Yankees. One, whether he leaves, one, whether he stays. And I think we could bring Dan work into this because Dan work, is in my opinion, the way I look at things now over the last couple of years, like Dan Rourke is the face of the Yankee fan that I think a lot of people within the Yankees organization probably pay attention to. They focus on the fan that's in their twenties and maybe has a large, you know, Twitter following. I mean, Dan Rourke's doing it all Yankees Avenue. If you're not checking that out man, you're really doing it wrong, but, uh, we'll, we'll bring Dan into this conversation here, Dan. And he's also the biggest like Aaron judge Stan that I've come across as well. So let's start off with the, uh, maybe with the worst scenario of the two for a Yankee fan, David and Dan, if Aaron judge chooses to sign with another team here in free agency, the Yankees would have a lot of money that they planned on spending on judge at their disposal. How could they use it to improve the team immediately for 2023? 
I'll defer to Dan here. Go ahead, leave us, leave us out. All right, so you're saying if, if the Yankees don't sign Judge, what's the next move? Yes, and I love how you I love how you phrase that. It's not if Judge signs with another team. It's just the Yankees <laughs> fail to sign Aaron Judge. So yeah, yeah what, I mean, what would you do? Well, one, you know, I'm an eternal optimist. My friends always say that you know it could be pouring rain outside, and I'll I'll say it's sunny. That is very true. I think Judge will be back, but if he doesn't come back, I will probably change up my offseason plan, which right now is offense, offense, offense. You guys mentioned signing Justin Verlander. That would be great. But the way I see it is the big reason why the Yankees have gotten bounced in the playoffs the last few years is their lineup not being good enough. So that's the main thing I want to put money towards. If you don't sign Judge, I mean, that's an extra, what, $40 million you're looking at for the payroll that you could add. Then I look at you probably – I'm a big Brandon Nimmo guy, and I know it's not realistic that they would sign both of them. If Judge ends up walking, I would love to see them bring him in. There's also Trey Turner, big fan, fan of him as well. And then it's Carlos Rodon. That's interesting. I don't know, man. I mean, it's hard to imagine a world without without Aaron Judge. But if but we're going to get to that here. Just just <laughs> right now, focus on possibly being without him, Dan. Yeah. Uh, there's that that the Japanese left fielder. He seems to be pretty good, I guess. Um, I don't know. I guess probably Brandon Nimmo is is where I would go, but definitely not an ideal situation. Yeah, I mean it's it's you're gonna need outfielders, right? I mean you already need an outfielder. You need you need, you need a left fielder. I mean uh, I love uh, Oswaldo Cabrera, but he was your starting left fielder, and the guy had played four minor league games in the outfield before he got called up. So that's where they were left. They were caught short, and uh, you know Cabrera did a nice job, but him as a starting left fielder in the postseason was not optimal. They need a left fielder as well. If Aaron Judge is out, you need a right fielder as well. So that puts you right in the outfielder market. But, uh, you know, the only example we have of this is go back to Robinson Cano when he left to Seattle for the big $250 million deal, turned down the Yankees' final offer. I think it was around $190 million or somewhere in that range. So what did they do? Uh, come on down, Jacoby Ellsbury, right? There, there was a, a snapback effect. For me, I think it's probably come on down Carlos Correa. Maybe they changed lanes and then get into the trade market and trade one of their middle infielders for some outfield help. Or as Dan said, maybe the Japanese market and go into the Japanese market and the international market and find yourself an outfielder along with an Andrew Benintendi too, as well to play left field. So yes, you're going to need some outfielders, but I think you go back to stars. If you lose judge, it's sort of, okay, we, we, we need to rethink this and configure this whole thing, reconfigure everything. And the best player available, certainly Trey Turner, can, you can argue that. You could argue Carlos Correa. Carlos Correa is actually a little younger, I think, 28 years old. So to me, it's come on down Carlos Correa because he fits the started shortstop. And then when Volpe's ready, move him over to third base. He can slide right to third base, a la Manny Machado, Alex Rodriguez. He kind of fits that mode. And then find some outfielders beyond that. I'm with you, David. I'm I'm more in that lane. I think Ben Intendi is a guy that you got to look at bringing back whether or not Judge stays or goes. And then you have to look for another outfielder if Judge signs with another team. You could go to the Japan route. You know the Yankees really gravitate toward that. Obviously, they, they would want to do their due diligence and whether the player has talent, but from a, a marketing perspective, for, from a business perspective, we've seen over the last 20, 25 years or so that that's uh, something that they really like to – to dip their feet into. So you could go the Japan route trades, you know, 
one, one of the infielders for a, perhaps a low key outfielder, like the diamondbacks always jump out at me with their outfield talent. That's a, you know, a low cost trade that they could potentially experiment with. And then, yeah, go the star route at shortstop. I think Correa and Xander Bogarts, like both would make sense as the shortstop and eventual move to third base. Uh, for me, take your pick. I think like, immediately man that's tough like Correa or Bogarts where do you go from there well price tag's gonna matter I think yeah. Correa is gonna draw in probably more because of his defense his all-around defense and the fact that he's 28 years old you know Bogarts has been up and down defensively mm-hmm. kind of hard to measure defensively he's been very much not liked by the metrics defensively and then this year kind of bounced back so was that more positioning getting him in the right spots now there's no shift you need more athleticism coming out now. That's what makes Trey Turner so valuable now. The way he moves, how fast he is, how athletic he is. It's a premium on athleticism now because the the ban of the shift and the potential running game too as well with the bigger bases. You know, the, the running game emphasis is going to come back into play. How much we don't know, but yes, it's a, it's a factor. Can can you run the bases? Can you move around and cover ground defensively? Is a big deal now because of the rules changes. All right, let's paint a rosier picture for Dan Rook here. If uh, Aaron Judge re-signs with the Yankees, what is the next position that the Yankees should address during free agency? All right, now, yeah, now you're a lot more up my alley. So this actually, you guys may totally disagree with this, and I understand if you do. But so I look at, and obviously, yeah, you need to address left field. I think Andrew Benatendi coming back is the way to go there. But, you know, with my theme, the off season being offense, 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 I do actually look at the catcher position and I see Jose Trevino, who I love. And obviously the defense is great, but outside of two months or three months of his career, he's really not just been below league average offensively, but significantly below league average offensively. I look at Oakland and I see Sean Murphy under control through 2025, I believe, or 2024 still is really solid defensively can block the ball pretty much as well as Trevino also as Pretty good arm game as well. Main difference is going to be the framing. Torino is just absolutely insane, but Murphy isn't all that too far behind. The offense, though, he's like a 120 WRC plus hitter. Hit about like 20 homers a year. I think when you're looking at a lineup that the way I see it, it can't really afford to have a hole as, once again, love Torino. With the offense that he's put up throughout his career, if he were to put that up again this year, even with how good the defense is, I just think that would be a major black hole in the lineup. So if they can get a deal with Oakland done for Sean Murphy, and that might include giving up Oswald Peraza, another top 10 prospect, I'm cool with that. If they can get that deal done, then all of a sudden the landscape of the lineup changes entirely, in, in my opinion. That's probably the route that I would go, with Trevino still being on the roster, of course, as a backup. Crazy, I know. I know it's, it's oh, out there. It's not crazy. You're, you're improving your team in the immediacy of, of what you're trying to accomplish 2023. For me, I'm, I mean, you look at the Astros and, and like the puzzle that the Yankees have been trying to complete for several years now, up the middle, right? We always hear great teams are well-constructed up the middle. Catcher, middle infield, center field. I feel like they're like that one piece away, and it's the shortstop position here, from completing a great puzzle up the middle. Trevino move you closer to completing that puzzle at the catching position. Do you want to take away an asset that could potentially complete the entire puzzle 
in a middle infielder like a Peraza or a Volpe, something that the A's are going to ask for, for a guy like Sean Murphy. It has me wondering whether or not that's a move you want to make, because it's, for me, it's a step. You, you take a piece of the puzzle that fits that's already on the board off of it. Well, the way I see it is I don't want to bank on two of them. Like I look at Volpe as the guy he's untouchable to me. And my mm-hmm. big like mindset with prospect is pick one or two, make them untouchable. The rest have to be on the table. It might just be PTSD from the way prospects have worked out with the Yankees over the past few years. Volpe is my guy. So with that being said, I have Peraza on the trade on the table. So I, in a way I kind of, while his value is at his highest, you know, he's already was a top 50 prospect in baseball. And if you're a team that was interested in him, seeing the way he played in those 15 to 20 games certainly only helps his value. So I look at it as he's kind of at his, his peak value right now. I would try to get the most out of him while you can. And if not, then what are you really doing? You're looking at having a shortstop second base combo next year of two 21 year old kids. I'm down for that. If say judge did walk and looking to totally reset, but if you're going into a year where, you know, with, what I assume is World Series aspirations. I'm not too sure if I want to bank on two kids right up the middle. So I would say go one, go go with Volpe. And ideally the Yankees could go out and get, you know, a top free agent shortstop. If they bring Judge back, I don't really see that being the case. So with that said, yeah, I think Peraza would be on the table under my, if I was, if Dan Rourke was GM. And I think he would probably, yeah, headline a, a Sean Murphy trade. That's just me though. You know, the way you answer that question is, yeah, just sign Correa or Turner or Bogarts. Solution solved. Yep. <laughs> More Toe on the Slab is coming up, but I want to tell you about True Classic, which is here to help you upgrade your wardrobe from those old ratty shirts in your closet. For a limited time only, get 25% off with the code SLAB at trueclassic.com. When it comes to certain fits of clothes, especially things like everyday t-shirts, I know what I like. But more importantly, I know what I hate. I cannot stand the baggy feel to a shirt. I like things fitted. Baggy sleeves are the things I stay away from the most. Wide collars, bacon neck, I can't stand any of that stuff. And True Classics Design Tees are there to make all the fellas out there feel really confident in their closing. From gym rats to dad bods, with True Classic shirts, you're going to get a lot of of head nods true classic tees they taper off towards the bottom but they fit tighter around the chest and the shoulders and that's the desirable look that can be achieved with every single body type true classic offers other menswear as well ranging from polos to workout shirts to boxer briefs if you need to change out your underwear true classic also has 100 risk-free guarantee with a 30-day return policy skinny dudes big dudes some jack dudes 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 true classic has you covered. Get 25% off at trueclassic.com with code SLAB. That's 25% off. That's huge. Code SLAB. Plus free shipping included on purchases over 100 bucks. Only at trueclassic.com. You know, I think there, there needs to be at some point, and probably this offseason, there, there needs to be a rebalancing of the assets. Meaning, you know, you, you sort of compare, you know, the, the catching positions by itself. Valid point, Dan. Obviously, the pitching staff is kind of a, an island by itself, how you rebuild the pitching staff. But the balance between infield and outfield is out of whack right now for the Yankees. Now, this is assuming Aaron Judge comes back. You're still short on outfielders. You know, you have to sign a left fielder. And in the minor leagues, Jason Dominguez is probably your best outfield prospect. He's still probably going to be a double A next year. He's not ready. Uh, still, The jury's still out on when he, his arrival will be. Estevan Floreal has been around. He's their best outfield prospect. It doesn't feel like they they trust him or want to give him a real shot. 
And uh, he's he, there's a decision that needs to be made about him too, as well, in terms of a roster spot. So how do you, how do you rebalance the infield? You know, the whole left side of the infield needs to be solved. Even if Donaldson comes back and plays third base next year, it's just for one more year. You still need a third baseman for your future. You still got to figure out the shortstop position is a Peraza or Volpe long-term. You have Glaber Torres and DJ LeMahieu at second base. You have a surplus, surplus of infielders and you have a lack of outfielders. So I, that's why I think the Yankees middle infielders are, are up for grabs of being rebuilt in terms of the trade market. Is Glaber Torres available in trades? Is DJ LeMahieu available in trades? And DJ LeMahieu gets five and 10 rights this year when the season starts. So you can't trade him at that point. Now, does DJ LeMahieu still have a lot of value? I think it kind of does. And even though he was hurt, it was a foot injury. He should be fine. Uh, he had a great year going last year, maybe offensively kind of a unique year. His on-base percentage was way up last year. He's taken a lot more walks than he had in the past, a true leadoff hitter. So, yeah, I mean, it, the Yankees kind of need to rebalance their infield with an eye towards the future, regardless of whether you're going to use Kiner Falefa as a stopgap continually at shortstop for a little bit longer and try Donaldson at third base uh, to start out the next year. That's not the long-term solution. you got to figure out your infield moving forward and make some decisions and at least have it lined up. So I, I see a rebalancing coming, you know, if, even on the minor league level, the Yankees have are, are loaded with, with minor league prospects that are in the middle infield position and a little short on outfield prospects. So that's got to be addressed long-term and that, that goes beyond Aaron judge and his signing. And whether you get Andrew Benintendi to play left field, it's moving forward. What's your infield configuration going to look like and what is moving forward going to be, the guys you're going to bet on. And that's what Cash, Brian Cashman uses that term a lot. You know, we make bets. We get all the information we can get. We make our bets. And then we we live with the decisions. Well, it's decision-making time for the Yankees this offseason. And whether or not they're going to make a trade of one of their big mid middle infielders, who has the most value? The guys with value are Torres and LeMahieu. And whether or not they're, they're drawing interest or not, or whether the Yankees will pull the trigger on that type of a trade. One of the bigger questions in regards to that is like whether or not we could see those big decisions being made that could lead to some type of infield facelift, whether or not they're going to happen before judge's decision. So that's, that's something that, again, if, if it happens before Aaron Judge makes his decision, the dates that we talked about, David, that are coming up in the next week to 10 days, right after that is when you could potentially see some of these moves that the Yankees are interested in in entertaining a big change in, in the infield here. A lot of moving pieces there. All right. Uh, I, should this... just, I should just explain yeah. 10 and five. I know I threw that out there. 10 and five rules mean that means a, a player, DJ LeMayu, that has 10 years of service time all you know overall, and then five years of that consecutively with the team he's currently with. So that, that gives him no trade. That gives him uh, you know ability to control his movement. So that's what I mean by 10 and five rules. Yeah. LeMayu's been with the Yankees, uh, will be five years. It will yeah. be five years. He'd be entering the third year of his newer contract that he signed uh, originally the five years and $90 million deal. So he'd be entering year three on that. This date in uh, pitching history, this week in pitching history, we're skipping that this week because I'm not about to cheapen the experience with James out there. So uh, straight to three up, three down we go here, David. Um, why don't you go first? Well, you know, <clears throat> as far as three up, three down goes, I think, you know, when, you, when you're talking about the industry as a whole, um, you know, there's sort of a, 
a, an interesting mix between old and new school that's battling. I don't want to call it culture wars, but when you talk about an overall philosophy of what's going on in the industry, we mentioned it before with Dusty Baker and James Click and, and the owner trying to trying to play referee between old and new school all year long, which might have led to, to that decision making at the end to let Click go or for Click to leave on his own. You look at the, the decision making of, of Dave Dombrowski in Philly, that blue chip model of, of player acquisition it, uh, sort of goes against the grain of the uber efficiency that the modern modern analytics has has brought into the game of that might not be the most uh, entertaining part of the game that maybe we've lost a little entertainment value along the way. Theo Epstein has kind of been the, in, in charge of this, the guy who's who kind of built these systems, these, these Uber analytical, Uber efficient systems that, that every major league team, every organization tries to build up their proprietary information. Are we going down the wrong way here in terms of entertainment value? Do we want more athletes, more movement? That's what the rules changes are designed to put into place. Um, does, does that, how does that play? Is this, is this a come to Jesus moment in the industry? Are we approaching that uh, philosophically speaking? Where does that leave the Yankees in their decision-making process? You know, I, I think uh, Brian Cashman's done a fantastic job of building up the organization and hiring great people around him. I know that the Yankees organization feels like they, maybe they were criticized a little too much by, by some of the media at the end of the year. Um, they did make it to the LCS. They did really, you know, by most organization station standards, they, you know, hey, what, what gives we got to the, you know, we, we, we almost got to the world series or we, we were playing for the right to go to the world series. I think the question becomes philosophically, you know, are you in alignment with your fan base? Does your fan base buy into what you're trying to do? And this is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, in terms of, you know, are we doing it the right way? And are we just trying to squeeze out uh, and, and do this the most efficient way or where does the entertainment value come in? I think that's where the Yankee fan base, and we mentioned on here a few times, I think that's where they've kind of, uh, that's where the booze come from, from the Yankee fan base, the overall decision-making that they don't quite understand. And then from the uh, organizational standpoint, and in particular the Yankees, their ability to explain that vision to the, to the Yankee fan base. Because I can tell you this, Brian Cashman, every step of the way, has made sound decisions based on the best information he can get around him. He's an outstanding general manager. He's been in this industry for a long time. He's widely respected by everybody around. But I think the, there's been a little bit of a disconnect with the fan base in terms of the overall vision. And wait a minute, why did we over? Why did we pass these great superstars, whether it was Harper or Machado or even Verlander originally? You know, what, what was the decision making again? You know, and, and let's let's revisit some of these decisions and why they were made. And are we on the right track here? And, and, and what is the organizational philosophy at this point? So that that's part of it, you know, and I think the organization saw, you know, dipping under the luxury tax a couple of years to try to reset the luxury tax in order to spend more money in order to, to, to make it more efficient. Yeah, we get it. We understand. But I think that vision needs to be articulated a little better moving forward. And I think we're going to see that too, as well. Uh, you know, Brian Cashman's an open book. Hal Steinbrenner recently has been available for interviews. So you know, it, it's a follow. It's something to see. I think if you're looking, especially with the Yankee organization, that's where some of the booze came from in postseason was the overview of everything. And I think the whole, whole industry is doing this, you know, giving Dave Dombrowski his credit for his vision and his style of building a team. 
and the blue chip acquisition model, as opposed to, you know what, we need to be extremely efficient here and spend our dollars wisely under the luxury tax and, and, and do that the most efficiently efficient way possible. Well, sometimes efficiency and entertainment don't go hand in hand. David, I'm not like not the most business savvy person out there, but from whatever I think of the way like industry choices are made, I visualize like the S curve that that businesses kind of incorporate, and I and I using it in a completely like opposite fashion, really, because like the S curve, people aren't familiar. It's it's a visualization that you can use to display the progress of a certain approach belief a uh, project over the course of time and i i feel like at one end of the s you have um things like you know pro scouting uh certain you know old school beliefs you have the new school beliefs on the other end of the s and i'm always thinking there needs to be more of a cohesive effort to get to the middle of the s and i feel like those discussions those battles like you're talking about they're they're kind of, you know, you're, everyone's, I think, slowly starting to realize that you kind of need to definitely work together to get to meet halfway through that, through that S curve. I don't know if that was a very poor analogy there, but I, I see the S curve in baseball and I'm, I'm, I know I'm using it in the, the unconventional fashion that I am. I guess what one thing I would refer you to is to go back to the Hall of Fame induction speech of Ted Simmons this year and listen to it. And if you haven't heard it, Go to YouTube and listen to his speech. He's, he's a lifer. He's done everything in this game. A great baseball player, inducted in the Hall of Fame. Great executive. He's done every job, scouting, front office. He knows everybody in this industry. And he talks about the balance in the game, that the game self-corrects. That everybody talks about, you know, oh, well, the game's going down the wrong path. You know, the, the dissenters, you know, there's the analytics is ruining the game. You know, the, the old school guard, the old guard that, that that punishes the game and feels like we're going down the wrong path. The game self-corrects. You know, we, we even if you look at postseason this year, players like Stephen Kwan with Cleveland mm -hmm. break, break the, the modern mold, you know, high contact, speed, athleticism. It comes full circle. What works gets copied in this industry and what doesn't work gets discarded. So it's a copycat industry. The game does self-correct. It's a great game it can be nudged in different directions. And that's what these new rules that we've talked about on this podcast are going to try to do is nudge the game in a different direction, a more active direction. Pace of play is going to pick up. Athleticism is going to be, be a, be a big premium. So yeah, the, you can nudge this game in one direction or another, but the game does self-correct. And I highly recommend you the best speech I heard all year long yep. was Sim, Simba's speech when he was inducted into the hall of fame, go listen to it. Listen to it again. If you're a baseball fan, because it's one of the best speeches I've heard in a while. It was excellent for sure. Uh, one item for me, three up, three down, as it relates to the free agency period that we talked about began this week, already saw some pretty big contracts handed out to relief pitchers. Edwin Diaz, obviously with the Mets, uh, Rafael Montero inked a three-year deal, 34 and a half million with the Astros. The Padres gave Robert Suarez five years and 46 million Looks like the relief market is going to be flush with cash this winter. And I think you're going to see a lot of relievers who had strong seasons and maybe think that it could only lead to a floor of, you know, decent money on a one-year deal. Like I think of a guy like David Robertson, 
I think he's in line for a multi-year deal here. And I don't think that's something that he thought could, you know, if you, you asked him honestly, something that he thought and relievers like him would have been possible either at the beginning of the 2022 season or as it was going on, I think the relief market is going to be very kind for those pitchers out of the bullpen. They're so important. You know, once, once again, the, the, the metrics don't do relief pitchers justice, you know, and, and may, maybe uh, because of the, the quality versus quantity argument, they, they're pitching one inning at a time or relief pitchers who might pitch 50 to 60 innings on a yearly basis compared to starters who do three times as much of that as that. It just doesn't show up in terms of, of value or however you measure it with war or what, whatever metric you want to use. But with all that being said, Relievers are stars. We saw that with Timmy Trumpet and Edwin Diaz and how you can build around stars and the way he came, his his walk-in song, his march into the Timmy Trumpet song. It was just remarkable. It lit up the stadium. These relievers are stars. When they're coming into the games, they're getting standing ovations and lighting up crowds. You know, Josh Hader was that way for several years in Milwaukee. And then with San Diego, had a little bump in the road, but got it going late. When he comes in the game and he lights up the crowd. So yeah, he only pitches one inning at a time, maybe a little bit more, but if you want to win in today's game, you need those power arms in the bullpen. And that is the biggest change in the game over the last 20 years is the bullpen, the power. It was up again this year. Overall average velocity was over 95 miles an hour. Average velocity was over 95 miles an hour. Several pitchers throwing in the upper nineties with wicked Meshing, breaking balls, tunneling effect, breaking balls off of that secondary pitches. So, yes, they're so important if you want to win. Undervalued because of the quantity of, of their workload, but very important. And it also, I think it's being recognized, too, that it's a highly volatile area, too. You know, the Yankees can only look at the back end of uh, Roldis Chapman's contract and how disappointing that was at the end. Or Zach Britton, how disappointing that was at the end mm -hmm. because of his injury. So, yeah. It's highly volatile, the reliever market, but really important if you want to win. I think we covered everything here this week. Um, we got through it without James. I didn't know if we were going to be able to do that, but uh, but here we are on the other side of the tightrope. We miss him. He cleans it up for both of us, I think. So. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Well, James will be back next week. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Again, please rate, review, subscribe. Best way you can show the support for the show. We appreciate that. Uh, for our terrific producer, Dan Work, chiming in here for David Cohn as well. I'm Justin Shackle. We will talk to you next week here on Toe of the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media. Take care.